And welcome to episode seven of the ITC Entertain the World podcast with myself, Jazz Wiseman. And as usual, I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Marshall and Al Smudge. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you very much, Jess. Yeah, fine. Thank you very much. So we're going to talk about The Baron today. The Baron was a series made by ITC that went into production in June 1965. Originally, it was a series that had Bob Baker and Monty Berman at the helm. Now, the series started because The Saint, the black and white episode, had come to an end, and Bob and Monty, as a partnership, were looking for a new series. And having had success with John Creasy's Gideon's Way, they saw The Baron as a good fit for television. So The Baron is a very important show in terms of ITC's history because it's the first action adventure series to be made in colour. Well, when I say that, I should point out that there were 14 episodes of Sir Lancelot made in colour, the pilot for Man of the World that was made in colour and filmed in Spain, and of course, Jerry and Sylvia Anderson's Stingray was shot in colour and distributed by ITC. But this is the first live action series now that be filmed in colour. So I know that Rodney's found this amazing piece of information that he's dug up today about colour. So very timely. Over to you, Rodney. Tell us what you know. Well, it, I literally received today um, a book which is uh, basically covers the London Life, which was a magazine of the swinging 60s. And it had only started being published weekly uh, about a month before this actual article by Lawrence Marks, which is called The Battle to Bring Colour to Your Screen. And it, it's basically an article which discusses the debate in Britain in, in government and in the television stations about whether Britain needs to go into colour and if so, which system it was going to use, the American one, the West German one or the French one. And uh, I noticed as I read through the article that one of the TV series, which was being filmed at the time, and they've got a large glossy colour photo of, is of the Baron. And of course, as usual, Lou Grade is one step ahead of most people. He was one of only two heads of ITV television companies who felt it was a good idea to go into colour. And as I say, it, I just thought it was an interesting article in that not only is the Baron the first sort of proper ITC live action colour programme, but it was also involved sort of in the debate in the sense that London Life is basically saying in this article, we need to be watching these shows in colour in Britain. Why do other countries get to see these shows in colour and we're still in monochrome? 
That's great, isn't it? Especially because, you know, Lou was on the ball, as you say, about making these in colour because he was selling his shows into America. And of course, America had gone colour in, I think it was about 1959. Yes, they were still broadcast in black and white episodes of black and white series. But if the series was made in colour, they were showing it in colour. We should really, I suppose, start at the beginning with Steve Forrest being cast as the Baron. I don't think anyone else was under consideration for this. I think, as far as I know, he was an actor put forward by the American networks, and away they went with him. And I just wondered what you guys felt of Steve Forrest as the actor in the show. The first thing I'd say is that until two months ago, I'd never seen The Baron. And the only thing I knew in advance about it was that there'd been quite a lot of criticism in the British press and among some of the guest actors about his performances, calling him things like Hollywooden and these sorts of things. And when I watched the show, I think it's extremely harsh. And so I did a little bit of research. I looked at his CV and, you know, his CV is really impressive. This is a guy who's discovered by Gregory Peck. He won a Golden Globe Award as a new star of the year actor in 1953. So a long time before The Baron. You look at the sort of shows he was in, a lot of them Westerns, which I think will probably be something we might come back to later. But um, he's got a good CV. I think it is a, a very unjust criticism really i mean yes he starts out a little stiff maybe but who wouldn't it's it's the richard bradford thing all over again you're in a different country you've got a different production methodology so you've got to adjust to that you've got to grow into that you watch as the series progresses and he's got some interesting scenes with some of our better character actors guest villains and i think he holds his own pretty well Here's production supervisor Johnny Goodman and Sue Lloyd talking about Steve Forrest being cast in the DVD commentary I recorded with them in 2004. Oh, I think I was simply told that they were bringing over this actor called Steve Forrest. And of course, the big thing was that to me that um, I wasn't that familiar with him, but his brother, of course, was... Um, Dana Andrews. Dana Andrews, mm. who was a big Hollywood star. Fabulous. You know, the star Biggest of uh, La- Laura, one of the most me- memorable films. And so the brother of um, Laura, Dana Andrews was yes. quite something for me. And um, uh, I just heard he was being um, contracted with the show. And in he came and... Um, uh, as I say, he was a little little bit stiff to start, you know, one, especially I happen to be a little bit of a loose cannon. And, mm. uh, you know, I'm fairly um, jolly with my remarks. But um, I think he wondered exactly what he was walking into for the first week or two. But then in no time at all, he settled down. And after all, when you've got characters like Sue Lloyd on the picture and that, he could hardly be po-faced, you know what I mean? Especially with Roger putting his head in the... Well, yeah, Roger Moore would stick his head <laughs> in the case and make some obscene <laughs> remark or something yes. and throw the whole thing into chaos, you know. Mm. And he had back trouble, bad back trouble, which was actually uh, due, really, for him to be slightly stiff at the beginning. Yeah, you know, I seem to recall now that we didn't have to bring in a physiotherapist or something, or or, or an osteopath at some point. I know he had to to sleep flat on a board, which was not in a bed. I know he, he was having a horrible time with his back. Here's director Cyril Frankel talking in a DVD commentary in 2004 about how he was asked to come in and help Steve Forrest. Now, I received a phone call at home and it was um, Bob Baker. 
and he said they had a problem. And the problem was Steve Forrest. Oh, is that right? And they said he was so stiff and unrelaxed. Would I be prepared to come down and see rushes and see whether I could help? So I went down and I saw the material and it was true. His shoulders were uptight and he was totally unrelaxed. Mm. Now, why that was so, I don't know. But I agreed that I could help and that I would direct this episode. And I'd simply, not persuaded, encouraged Steve Forrest to relax, to let go and to be himself and to have confidence. And it, it worked. I noticed that, I mean, he was obviously a huge admirer of Danger Man and Patrick McGowan. And he says he loved, like, John Drake's quality of the unknown was uh, was what he said. And he clearly wanted his character to have some of that sort of air of mystery. But he said that wasn't what the script writers wanted. Mm. So I guess to a certain extent, Steve Forrest didn't get the John Mannering that he wanted. On occasions, only two or three maybe, you do get hints of the Baron's nature. He's, he's not a sort of straight up, straight down character really. He's, he's not a cardboard cutout. And you do, you do get some idea that there's a complexity to the man. Only, only little hints and snippets, but they are there. And he can be seriously tough when necessary, can't he? I think mm. as, as an actor... As a, as a stunt performer, whatever, he acquits himself very well in the fights. Most of the fights are very well realised and he is very good in there. Yeah, I was going to say that. I thought he was really good in the fights. If we think of actors in terms of their physicality, you know, we said the other week that Roger Moore was stunningly handsome when he's Simon Templer. Richard Bradford was lucky in the sense that he has a very distinctive look, doesn't he? A young guy with grey hair. There's nothing like that that makes Steve Forrest stand out as an individual. And and I think maybe that's one of the things that people were sort of picking on when they criticised him, that they found him slightly sort of um, slightly plastic looking. But I think it's just he's a conventional looking guy who didn't have any particular physical traits. It can come over as perhaps a bit standardised, you know, a bit routine here. And like you say, we've had Danger Man, we've had The Saint. You can see why perhaps people were thinking this was something like running into a treadmill, character-wise. But there is still a lot to him, and there's still a a lot to the programme. Yeah, I mean, I think they were a bit unfair because they probably looked at him and thought he's a tall guy, blue-eyed, handsome, regular-looking actor, you know. Not necessarily typecast, but pigeonhole into a typical lead-like actor. Yeah. Clean-cut, square-jawed, broad-shouldered, all that yeah, stuff. absolutely. Bob Baker and Monty Berman were there setting this up, and they'd got Steve Forrest. 
And then the news came through that there was interest in the saint being made in colour. So Baker and Berman dissolved their partnership. And Bob went off with Roger Moore and formed a new partnership and made a sort of pilot episode for the saint in colour, which was the Russian prisoner, which Lou obviously went off and sold to NBC. And the saint is another story being made in colour. What happened there was that Monty formed a new partnership with his scriptwriter, Dennis Spooner, and that partnership would go on and create many, many ITC shows, including The Champions, Randall and Hopkirk Deceased, Department S, Jason King, and The Adventurer. So this is, again, another important sort of milestone in ITC's history. This is where that Berman-Baker partnership ends, and one goes off in one direction, and a new partnership is formed, and we get a whole run of ITC shows where, if we're honest about them, they become a bit production line. Even Monty Berman himself has gone on record as saying that they were sort of the fun film factory at Elstree making these shows. Dennis Spooner obviously is the main script writer and they bring in Terry Nation as script supervisor, script editor. So this is the show really where if you look at the writing credits, 25 of the episodes are written either by Terry Nation or Dennis Spooner, or a combination of them. Maybe that's another thing that's where people who criticise the show maybe have, they may be right in a way that some of the scripts were, I'd say, maybe rushed or familiar. We know what we're going to talk about with Portrait of Louisa later on. But I think that was a flaw in the production, that they didn't really bring in a varied amount of writers. I think it's a potential weakness when you have one of the main script writers as a script editor. I would offer the football comparison of a match being refereed by one of the players. It's the old Brian Clemens with the Avengers thing of who edits the script editor's scripts. I do think it is a problem. I mean, Terry Nation was a prolific writer. He has a reputation of writing excellent plots that need to be polished by someone else. I think here they would have been perhaps better off, and again it may come back to money, but having a script editor who was a neutral, who was literally looking at other people's material. A bit like Harry Junkin on The Saint. I know he did write a few episodes, but he was primarily a script editor. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's a lot of routine material in here. Let's be perfectly honest about it. You've got, say, a half dozen strong episodes. But even in the routine ones, they do more than occasionally, they come up with some inventive little thing. I think I agree with Rodney. It's a bit too sort of hand in glove, really, isn't it? Having the two of them working so closely together. And they shared an office at Elstree. And I think that there was a lot of pressure from Monty Berman about budgets on this show, which we'll talk about. Obviously, it's very location light. You know, it's predominantly based at the Elstree back lot. But I think Monty's reputation for keeping very very tight purse strings extended to the script writers there and I think personally he probably lent on those two put the pressure on and said we need x amount of scripts and instead of getting someone else in to do it he expected them to deliver which we've all agreed is a real shame because actually as soon as you get some other people involved scripts start becoming much more interesting in dialogue and in action 
Well, we've got the irony here. We've got the opposite problem to the Zoo Gang. In the Zoo Gang, you've got six episodes written by six different people. And as Smudge said at the time, I think they probably just gave each of those script writers a copy of Paul Gattaco's novel and said, there you are, come up with something. Uh, and so there isn't enough continuity. And here, there's perhaps on occasions too much continuity, as in too much sameness, certainly too much Elstree backlog. And so um, I do think here they needed more variety. The other problem with this scenario-wise, script-writing-wise, is there's no hook. As you said, Jazz, they picked up the Baron from Creasy, but they just picked up a character and a format and the right to do whatever they wanted to do with the format. Besides the original cast of Steve Forrest, we had Paul Ferris, who plays, I think, a rather inept shop assistant, David Marlowe, and Colin Gordon as Templeton Green in the original setup for the series. But I would like to say that I think that the David Marlowe character is where this series is absolutely flawed and probably where people who are writing reviews of it have seen it, because all he seems to be in the show for is to be bashed over the head by a villain. It could be in the Baron's shop, someone comes in and they're going to steal something and he gets lumped over the head, or he's out with the Baron attempting to do something, follow someone, then he gets lumped over the head. His character is kind of there as a foil just to be beaten up. It's one of the things that always frustrated me about the series when I first saw it as a kid, that the format changes. Because like you say, you've got David Marlowe, Templeton Green, and then later on you've got a little more consistency with Cordelia. And you can understand why people would get frustrated with the series because you tune in one week and it's these two people. You tune in next week, it's this person. You tune in for the majority of the episodes and it's another person completely different. I didn't take to that on original viewing, I have to confess. I think David Marlowe's character, Paul Ferris, has certain things in common with the police inspector in Zoo Gang, in the sense that there isn't much depth, and you get the feeling, rightly or wrongly, that there isn't much depth to the actor either. I mean, it's one of those examples of, um, obviously, he gets dropped because... American ABC wanted Sue Lloyd instead. And there's often a lot of criticism of American interference. And maybe we could put that down as an example of actually a good move on their behalf. Because yeah. there's no doubt, whatever Cordelia's character's minus points, and I'm sure we'll come on to those, it's a far better fit and it, it offers the show a bit of contrast between the two characters. And we should point out that that format change within the series came after eight episodes. So the production was halted and completely reformatted. What happened was they took some episodes over to America and ABC saw them. And one of those was Diplomatic Immunity, where they saw Sue Lloyd and said, right, well, we want her as the assistant. Get rid of that guy. So eight episodes in, the production was stopped. No, I say David Marlowe was completely written out of it. And Templeton Green was sort of toned down and appeared, I think, maybe in one, maybe two. He was mentioned in a couple. but um, And that's where Sue Lloyd came in. And clearly, like you say, Rodney, that worked in a much superior way. I think the two together, when they were sparring with lines, there were actually some good dialogue between the two. That There was um, no, no dialogue between the David Marlowe character and 
the baron at all it was just like oh you've been over hit over the head again kind of thing oh sorry yeah. i dodged up i think it was a shame to drop templeton green personally mm, i agree i mean i, it, I liked it, him and also from a plot point of view cordelia is only working in the shop because templeton green has put her there it would have made sense to keep him on and i think he was a little bit quirky and there was some of the sort of English and American sort of jokes that went off between them. He gets really annoyed by the Baron calling him Temp. I yeah. think he says in one episode, well, call me Alec if you must, yep. but don't call me Temp. Yes. And I rather loved his sort of mad office, which is in the middle of this sort of warehouse, isn't it? And mm. you suddenly go into a posh office. Personally, I, I would have been very happy if Templeton Green had been kept on, but I don't think anyone is going to miss Paul Ferris, are they? As you were saying, that there's no depth to him. There's, uh, I mean, never mind no depth. There's nothing between his ears because it's all been bashed out of him. I think, <laughs> you know, he, he's not the, the as, as Chaz said, he's not the brightest bloke in the in the thing. Your point is good about Templeton Green because she is placed with the Baron at Templeton Green's behest. It's supposed to be a cover for her intelligence agent's work so she can travel around the world. So we, sh we should have had uh, more of Templeton Green, I think. Like you say, he's a different angle to add into it all, isn't he? And like, it's clearly obvious that the Baron is doing jobs for British intelligence now and again, even when Templeton Green's not in it. So it would have been, made much more sense for him to have it. It's almost like Cordelia's relaying the instructions from Templeton Green, but Templeton Green's not there. I think character opportunity missed there, personally. Yeah. Colin Gordon's a good actor, and he definitely adds a little bit more weight to the series when he's in it. Well, I mean, in that pilot, when he comes on right at the end and he's sort of standing there on the east-west border with his wire clippers and he's complaining about the British weather and the fact the test match is going <laughs> terribly. And actually, it's funny. There is an absurd element to it, but I don't mind that. I think we could have done with a bit more of his eccentricity. Yes, he's a, he's a sort of Charters and Caldicott type eccentric spy. He's, he's very sort of like that, straight up, straight down with, with the test match stuff and everything. But he, he does add a nice lightness to things and, and and the tag scene was good apart from the awful corny rule britannia music at the end yeah that elstree back lot again though wasn't it <laughs> I, w I wonder if templeton green's very englishness maybe went over the heads of uh, american companies i mean they got sue lloyd because they thought well she's pretty and she's charming etc but maybe his mcc type humor you might be right there because they've not seen the Avengers and fallen in love with this kind of quirky English side mm -hmm. of what, you know, the Avengers was trying to celebrate. So the Baron predates that. I think in the series, Sue Lloyd does get some competition occasionally in terms of assisting the Baron, which is interesting. But I think she's got an amazing resemblance to Kay Kendall in this. She looks almost a ringer for Kay Kendall. Would it be fair to say that the Cordelia has been kidnapped becomes a little bit tedious you're talking in terms of david being the foil there's one episode where finally the baron clicks into it i think it's in the awful two-parter and he says i don't want you guys taking the girl as a hostage she's been a hostage throughout the entire series <laughs> i would say and, and you'll appreciate this one rodney i would say she went to the same field agents training school as tara king yeah, she does get literally every episode she gets taken hostage, doesn't she? Or she makes a fatal error that mm. leads to something. But you've got to move the plot on somehow. But the inconsistencies in Cordelia, there are inconsistencies across the whole thing in terms of character. It makes me wonder, were Nation and Spooner being too self-indulgent? Was there never a writer's Bible? Because the character does change. I mean, there are a number of occasions where Cordelia veers into competence 
and can hold her own. Well, I mean, there's the one where, is it George Mercer, where he's a policeman, and at the murder scene, it's her who finds the bullet, and she's the expert, not him, isn't she? And there's the one where Baron jumps onto the back of the lorry, and she's expected to do the expert driver thing, to shake off the tag or to act as the decoy. And she veers from this sort of lady in peril stuff most of the time, and, and occasionally she's she's a very competent agent. They're not even consistent with her car, because she's got that DAF 33 or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and that appears in a couple of episodes. But mm-hmm. um, it doesn't become her car every week or anything, does it? It's sort of underused again. The only sort of real hook we've got for Cordelia is is that she's very mod. She's very fashionable. Yeah, yeah that is the only hook really, isn't it? I'm not it's sure good. I'd describe that black and white plastic thing of hers as I well, but... I love I love that. That has given me minutes of amusement, that, that <laughs> outfit. I called it the plastic humbug. We've spoken about Sue Lloyd, but let's hear Sue herself talking about getting the role in a DVD commentary I did with her in 2004. Well, I came into the previous episode uh the one that was called diplomatic immunity and Mm -hmm. um i came in as a spy and it just worked out that the americans who were wanting to buy the series decided that they would rather keep me in it so as a running character so cordelia winfield became a running character This show does have a great car. You know, it has the Jensen CV8, which I think is a real lovely car. There's a little story there that, as far as I know, following on from getting the Volvo for the Saint, Johnny Goodman was keen to get a car for the Baron. But I think Jensen approached ITC about this, didn't they, Rodney, you were saying? Uh, They did. It was Jensen's PR consultant, Tony Good, and he states in the TV Cars book that Giles Chapman wrote that his client, Jensen, had no advertising budget, but he'd noted how well the Volvo had done in terms of sales since it was used in the the Saint. And in Good's words, I tried to think out of the box by making it a car to aspire to. We talked to TV producers, said we'd be happy to lend them a car. The breakthrough came when we got one into the Baron. He actually says it was an ugly car, but we established a real cachet. Now, I wouldn't actually uh, agree with the ugly car thing. I no think way. there's something rather magnificent about it. I love the look. I love the colour. I love the, the red leather interior as well. I think it's a supercar. But that book does make the interesting point that this was a sort of hybrid British-American car because the engine was Chrysler. The bodywork was, was British. And that sort of fits in quite nicely with the Baron, doesn't it? Which yeah. increases books, is a British character. And of course, because becomes a Texas rancher in the in the TV series. And so that the character fits the image because as we know from all of the cliches, everything comes across bigger in Texas and it's a beast of a car. It's, it's, it's a lovely design. I like it. It's got a very unusual lamp configuration, that stylized front. I love that. Here's production supervisor Johnny Goodman talking about the car in a DVD commentary I did with him in 2004. If I can mention, Jazz, now the car, <clears throat> which is quite interesting because... Um, in the early days of making shows like The Saint, we had enormous problems getting companies to provide um, an action car for long periods. They just didn't realize the, the value, unlike the Americans, of course, who, who really appreciate what the value is. But by the time we got to the Baron, we'd really made our stamp with things like The Saint, and I had no trouble in getting this Jensen 
Mm. Uh, which they provided and uh, very happily to us for the whole series, you know. Yeah, I thought it was the best and most fabulous car. It was very fabulous nice. car. Great car. And I mean, the, the car is a real star. Considering how overused that Elstree back lot is, it, at least we get to see that magnificent beast of a car drawing up quite a few times and it. it sort of adds a bit of sparkle to it. And I suppose but, in terms of product placement type things, here was the first colour one. The dullness of the Elstree back lot allows the car to shine, doesn't it? Yes. There is an episode where you do see the real number plate, the C-Reg number plate, because in the show it's B-A-R-1, as we said. But there's an episode that we'll come on to later where if you look very closely, you can see the real number plate on two instances. We briefly mentioned about Monty Berman and his notoriously tight reins on the budget we should talk about his approach here that it was to make as many episodes as possible stretching the budget as thinly as he could and there we talk about the overuse of the Elstree backlot which is literally in every episode because they hardly ever went on location the set redressing that if you watch them in production order you see the same sets over and over again in about five episodes and then they move on to another set and I just think that if Monty had been a little bit more kind of like, OK, I'm not going to make 30 episodes, I'll make 26. We could have had an even better show because I think the Baron works best when they are allowed out on location. And some of the location episodes are, are really great and real fun. And it's lovely to see them out with the real car on the streets of London or you know, around the home counties. But when it's just that back lot, we watched all 30 episodes to do this podcast, but after about five or six and you see it on the same street redress, you think, oh, come on, guys, get out of the studio. Well, I am. I'm thinking, like, come on, Monty. This is where colour is a minus point. Yes. I remember weeks ago, Smudge talking about the fact that black and white is far more forgiving in terms of artifice. The Saint use that back lot quite often, but it doesn't look as bad in black and white. It, it suddenly looks horribly artificial in colour. And that's fine on the Avengers because the Avengers will be using it and saying this is a set. But the Baron isn't that type of show. It's not a show which is sort of parodying itself. And so I do think that while all backlot is restrictive anyway, I think the fact that it's in colour makes it suffer even more. This is the big problem here. You would think, as we've said, this is a flagship program now. This is the first one to be filmed fully in colour. So you think you would hope you would have gone the opposite way. You would have thrown more money at it. There is some diabolical stuff in here. Um, I mean, one that particularly springs to mind. There's a piece in Enemy of the State where the Baron's being warned and the flood lighting for colour, obviously, shows off the really, really badly painted set. You can see the brush mark you can see the drips of paint yeah, and you, you would think if you're making your first one and being Lou you would hope they might chuck some money at it but they've gone completely the opposite way it looks terrible the color palettes they use are fairly flat because of the color yeah. lighting and the color system and you would have hoped there would be more consideration as this was a, a big toe in the pond of color the color palette is predominantly what I would call dull and sludgy there's very very muted colors there's no for example fantastic reds there's the occasional time where a woman might wear a red dress say hillary tyndall for example in the seven eyes of night but reds seem to be a no-no in this color palette and i do remember doing a dvd commentary 
with, I think it was Roy Ward Baker, and he mentioned that the technicians in England didn't have the experience, really, of making shows in colour. You're right as well, Smudge, because this is where they should have put more money into it and maybe got someone over from America and given them some creative and critical advice on how to film the colour. Because at the moment, if you look at most scenes, particularly interior sets they are absolutely flooded in light there's no real nice corners where there's shadows there's no subtlety to it so that's why i think where it makes it look flat whereas when you look at the beautiful lighting in any of the black and white itc shows i mean whether it be man of the world whether it be danger man whether it be the sentimental agent whether it be the saint there's the noir quality to the lighting because those technicians had all worked in black and white so they knew how to get subtle shadows and then dark, real heavy darks as well, where characters could emerge from. That's, mm. You don't get any of that in the Baron, which is a real shame. There's one or oh. two that I've written down where there was some nice lighting. For this type of colour to work, you mostly rely on night shots and darkness. I mean, like the one with Gillian Lewis, the old dark house thing, when they're doing that, and she's mm. searching through the desk and suddenly the lights go off. There's some nice, relatively nuanced lighting. There's a lovely piece of lighting in the confrontation from Samurai West when Sterling confronts Asano in his house because he's got that green filter on it. There's yeah. a nice light effect there, but most of the time you have to wait for darkness. The, the daylight scenes are just flooded. The filming of this overlaps with Man in a Suitcase because this carries on till October 66 filming. Man in a Suitcase had started filming by August 66. And I'd say that all 30 Man in a Suitcase episodes look fabulous in terms of the colour, particularly on the Blu-ray versions. I'm not saying that they're 30 fabulous episodes, but they all look beautiful. Is that partly an Elstree versus Pinewood thing as yes. well? It's... Yes, you, you consider yeah. the camera department you've got at Pinewood. You've got such a history at Pinewood, such excellent technicians. On this, you've got Gil Taylor. Gil Taylor was a good photographer. I mean, he was, I think he was one of the, the first Star Wars photographer. He was doing stuff like Roman Polanski in black and white, of course. But he's a competent, well, he's a more than competent photographer. I just can't see what the problem is, whether the colour cameras they used were different. It's a working studio. I'm not sure if at that point it had gone four walls. So you would think there would be experience dragged over from colour film production but like there was a Pinewood. By the time you get to Man in a Suitcase starting, there is a tiny bit of an overlap. The Baron had nearly finished filming mm -hmm. then. So I think that they learned a lot in that time. And as soon as they went on to the next production, I think they knew that they had to improve the look of the colour filming. And probably that's why maybe Man in a Suitcase ended up going to Pinewood, because they'd had experience of making colour films. Elstree is essentially the ideal studio for Monty Berman, because it had the reputation in the old cinema days. They called it the Porridge Factory. They just churn stuff out, basically. Yeah. And I wonder if that's part of the problem. We've got the same problems in both studios. If you look at Man in a Suitcase, we've got the Spanish village from Finders Keepers. That gets hammered, but somehow they manage to make it fresh. They use different angles. I don't know what the sort of nature of the size of the back lot was at Elstree, but it, it looks small. It looks compact. It looks limited in choice of angles. So I think that might be something. There's one of the episodes where they do a runaround in the car, and there's another one where they give you a foot chase with um, the Baron avoiding the police. And both of those elements show 
the entire extent of that backlot set and it seems quite small. There's kind of two angles that they film from that seem to turn up all the time. There's the one that's mm -hmm. kind of opposite the Barrens. You'd be filming on the Barrens pavement, sort of showing the mm -hmm. entrance and what's sort of on the opposite side, which depending on where you are in which country is, as either a flower shop or a delicatessen, it's literally a sign that's put over the top. And then there's the other one that's kind of where it seems to be like an embassy entrance or a bank entrance, or it's the entrance yeah. in Masquerade where yes. um, they... <laughs> Yeah, part one, two, where they're going to go and steal the crown jewels. <laughs> yeah, and, they, and they've got that corner shot where you, you've got on the sort of right-hand side of the screen, you would have the upward slope and the cobbles. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was Cavisham's flat in Farewell to Yesterday. That's also the bar, isn't it, in The Man Outside? It's that overuse that we talked about. It's a shame. <laughs> We talked about the criticism of Steve Forrest and you know, I think we're all agree that he isn't a Roger Moore or a Patrick McGowan or a Richard Bradford, but he handles it well. But I do think that the people who have been writing about the Baron, whether that be Robert Sellers in his book, which he hardly briefly mentions, or James Chapman, another book that we've mentioned before, that again, he doesn't hardly mention the Baron. In particular, Alwyn Turner's book on Terry Nation, where he's says that Steve Forrest was incapable of flirting. Well, I think that that's such a mistake because if you look, he flirts a lot with the leading ladies in this show. And I think that there's a lot of going on where people have watched one or two episodes and judged the whole series by that. One of my first notes was the Baron always seems to be smirking and flirting. I mean, the one with Virginia Stride, I think there's a, an overnight oh, yeah. backstory there. Uh, yeah, definitely. Knowing look, look when she comes to collect the breakfast tray. He does flirting. He can actually flirt with his eyes as well as uh, what he says and his smile. I think he's very much at ease with the female characters. Mm -hmm. And when he does get a really top actress to bounce off, so someone like a Sylvia Sims, it takes him to the next level. The Cordelia relationship, when it starts initially, and again, this is why I'm saying, is, is there a writer's Bible? Initially, she's sort of semi-resistant to his advances. And then you see them play the light comedy scenes together. They joke into the relationship. And there's one point, again, I think it's the old Dark House episode where they're navigating their way down. And they're like an old married couple in the car talking about navigation. If you were navigating, Columbus would never have found America. There's a lot of spark and there's a lot of chemistry between Forrest and the ladies. And actually, when you mention that episode, it's that episode, isn't it, when they're staying at the sort of pub and uh, the next morning when they're having a conversation about how awful the coffee is, they are like an old married couple, aren't they? So dark the night that episode is, by the way. No, I think he takes any, any opportunity to have a little dalliance, if he can, a little sort of nod and a wink to the ladies or whatever, even if it's just a passing comment. I think he's a remarkably flirtatious character. Yeah, well, at what? the beginning of that very first, well, the pilot episode, Diplomatic Immunity, because it is sort of a, an introductory episode, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, he's even chatting up the air hostess and says, I'd like to show you my brass rubbings and things like that at the beginning <laughs> of the episode. Yeah, and then he shows his, his sort of standards or some of his standards by rebuffing the, the older lady who wants yes. to talk antiques with him. Yeah, he's incredibly flirtatious with, with a number of them. I mean, now Andre in uh, Roundabout, I mean... He's incredibly frustrated. Well, there's Caroline Blackiston in one of them where she feels his muscles and said, oh, I'd like some of them. And he's like, a bit later, honey. Yeah, lots of it going on. And actually, he's quite happy to flirt with the baddie females as well. So, I mean, I think it's Lois Maxwell in something for a rainy day who's basically a crooked insurance boss. 
and he's very happy to, to do some flirting with her, even though at that point he's already suspected she's the villain of the piece or one of them. She's a sort of Shirley Eaton type from the, from the Saints. She does some of the running, as we know, with that scene, which is rather slightly on the risque side for an ITC tea time show. Well, with the way he says that they don't come in this wrap. Cabinets like this. Yeah, cabinets like this, yeah. That's true, because he also flirts with um, Patricia Haynes in Epitaph for a Hero, doesn't he? She's Mm. a baddie. Unfair criticism. We should talk about some of the familiar faces because you mentioned there Sylvia Sims. I thought she was absolutely wonderful in that episode, Farewell to Yesterday, which, okay, is a bit saint-like in places. There's bits that are ripped off from certain saint episodes, but there's a real depth to her character, isn't there? Don't get involved with me. I'm a terrible drunk. And I mean, that's real depth in terms of the script writer to create in the character, isn't it? Because she's damaged. She's also self-destructive. I mean, uh, she, I think she tells the bearer, mind your own business, let me go to hell my own wow. way. Mm-hmm. And she says that drink helps deaden the pain. She plays the part absolutely brilliantly, doesn't she? Yeah, and he, as you said earlier, Rodney, when he gets a good acting foil to bounce off, he raises his game as well. He's there with her, toe-to-toe, as it were. That that sort of lost soul that she is in that episode it's it's one of the strongest female characters in the itc collection i think and that's an episode written by harry junkin as well who Mm. gets lots and lots of criticism especially for what his work on the saint i think that's unfair to criticize him for this because that's a good episode and i know he's Mm. lifted like the train scene at the end for a certain saint episode but to be able to write for a character like that he clearly got to be half decent script writer there's depth to the episode. There's also some lovely comedic things. You know, he's clambering out the train window, isn't he? And mm. you've got the people saying, oh, an American. And, you know, I love little touches like that. That is a, a very fine episode. And it does, not only with Sylvia, I mean, that quiet assurance that you get from Steve Forrest, that sort of resilience when William Sylvester tries to stop her from leaving the club. And it's pitch perfect playing. He doesn't go over the top. He keeps it nice and flat. And you think, yeah, this is a guy who's in control. This is a guy you you probably wouldn't argue with. And that is far from any criticism of being wooden. Despite the criticism that we've all made about the subscripts and the fact that too many are, are written by the same two people, there is quite a variety in terms of the heaviness or lightness of the storylines, because we have got some really quite seriously dark elements in the Baron, but there's also quite a lot of fun, lighter stuff as well. There's a lot of light comedy in there threaded in, in between the drama. So yes, it's not all sort of straightforward and doer and there's a lot of variety. I mean, the scripts may seem routine, but there is variety in there. And there are, in every script, there's a nugget of something. There's a, there's a nice piece of inventiveness or what have you. You said there's a, a something good in everyone. I would say, well, I struggled with the two-parter, which is Storm Warning in the Island, which mm. was edited into that Mystery Island film. As a two-parter, I thought, oh my God. you know. And I have a thing with ITC and Boats. That was a triple whammy because not only have you got the boat set reused for two episodes, you've got it used in the previous one, Night of the Hunter. So in yeah. Monty's case, it was, it, was a, it was a lovely episode. You can't believe because as Steve Forrest relaxes into the role and things improve and the scripts sort of pick up a bit, 
you can't believe the series that's developing so well can suddenly hit that brick wall, that two-parter. It is bad. Everything in that two-parter, I think, is appalling. Mm -hmm. Even guest actors who are normally reliable. You think how good Dudley Sutton is in the same episode we were talking about weeks ago, Scorpion, how Mm -hmm. menacing he is. He's absolutely useless in there. Yeah. It's almost as if it was so bad, it drains everything out of everyone. And yeah. yet, you see, ironically, the other two-parter, which I think, was it called The Man in a Looking Glass when it's turned into one? Yeah. Masquerade mm-hmm. and the Killing. I think it is, is superb. Yeah, I like that. I think that, uh, well, that's a double episode that really gives Steve Forrest something to chew on. When he's playing that Eddie part, the gangster that he's, who's had plastic surgery, he really gets a chance to sort of show that he can act in a different way in that. And, and actually, it moves at a decent pace, that. The thing is, with Storm Warning in the Island, it's so sluggish. Whereas Masquerade in the Killing, that keeps going, you know, it's next bit, next bit, next bit. And it's got beautiful quirkiness to it. I rewatched it because I enjoyed it so much. And um, there's a point where the policeman, Kenneth Warren as Fox Stewart, is convinced mm. that this is a genuine letter. And Cordelia says, no, it's not, because uh, the Baron always uses a proper pen. He can't yeah. stand, you know, ballpoints. Mm-hmm. Lovely detail. And then so the little letter to Fox Stewart goes in the wrong pigeonhole because he's got a double-barreled name. You know, those are lovely little details. And even though it's quite a dark two-parter, even in the second part, they sort of come up with things that you can't help sort of laughing at. So just as he's managed to replace Eddie and you think he's going to be fine, suddenly we know that Eddie's got a tattoo. How's he going to deal mm-hmm. with that? And that he's going to have to come up against this old mate of his who he was in prison with and it's almost like you know each time he sort of got on top something else is thrown his way i i think you know that's beautifully plotted as a Mm. two-parter and a good cast as well because bernard lee is good in it because he's menacing in a way that he doesn't really shout at the people he's working with him that's john carson for example he just kind of whispers to him and you know that he, he's evil and means business. And John Carson's great in it as well. As a sort of drunk John Carson's doc- always good. Always great, mm-hmm. isn't he? Drunk doctor, keen on the girl, uh, Yvonne Fernu, who can't stand the sight of him. Yeah, I think that's a really, really well done two-parter. I just wish they'd done the same for the other one. But in fact, I wish they hadn't even bothered making the other one. I wish they'd just saved the budget and put it into other episodes personally. The end effects are appalling. I mean, I know we, we've talked, mm. well, we haven't talked about it, but what they're using is early blue screen, as yeah. Johnny Goodman tells us on the DVD commentaries. I would have thought that would have been quite expensive at the time. But the blue screen scenes at the end of Storm Warning, you've got these people on life rafts and the background is like a storm at sea. Mm. You know, they'd be going, and, and it just looks so naff. And there's no excuse really for that because I've got some production stills of Danger Man the half hour series being made 1959 and they're using blue screen so that's five or six years later the technicians should be able to get that right but that there are some really terrible um, instances of blue screen in this show i mean some of the actual well mate paintings as well aren't that great i know you said about the one where you could see some paint i noticed in night of the hunter where he's in that apartment and it's supposed to be greece i think it is isn't it mm-hmm. That Mate painting, 
from the hotel apartment there that's not a great one i mean and if you can see it on the print that the dvd is like now imagine what it's going to look like on blu-ray i mean it's, it's not convincing but to give a positive to the technician who did it it's nicely painted i think i think we do don't we have to bear in mind that itc were not thinking what we would be looking at in mm. 50 60 yeah. years time to yeah. be fair to them on a tiny box in the living room in yeah. 1966 would it have looked bad yeah and to remember that most people would only be watching it in black and white theme music was by Edwin Astley and obviously it's got some quite interesting titles. I always think the titles personally are a little confusing in the way that you've got the girl who's kind of screaming and the Baron sort of racing to her rescue, a bit like a damsel in distress. The subsequent part of the titles, I think, are good. There's Baron holding the suitcase and the animated man around the various capitals of the world to give it that international flavour, like Rio de Janeiro, etc. And then the antique images with the very clean typography, I think, is really nice. It's just that start bit that I find a little odd. It seems disjointed. I've, I've never been able to make sense of it. So if anybody can explain it to me, I, I would welcome that. You've got the well-filmed car thing, but the close-up of the girl and the guy throwing the punch, because we're so familiar with it, you can see that's on the back lot. And it just seems so scrappy. It doesn't coordinate for me. So yes, I like the animation. I like the hints of the international traveller. But the girl and the guy, the attacker, seems a complete non-sequitur. I think there are too many different things going on. I mean, if you compare it to something like the Danger Man half-hour ones, where it's fairly seamless, he comes out the building, gets in the car, he's getting on with the job. Man in a suitcase, you've got all those various little ingredients that appear which are all intrinsic to the show. And here, it's almost like they had four ideas and decided, well, we'll go with all four. It's not like setting the stall out with, say, like the Persuaders, is it? ITC title sequences did develop and become very, very good. I just think this one's a little bit of, like you say, not sure what they're really trying to achieve here. I do think that damsel in distress bit is just so out of character with the rest of the show as well. Well, we eulogised the other week, didn't we, about Zoo Gang, the titles, which is superb. And you feel already you know something about the story before the first episode starts. Here, there's no sense of that, I don't think. No, it, it doesn't clue you up to what's coming at all. But it just seems so... Cheap. Cheap, yeah. <laughs> Cheap. Sorry. You know, you've, you've got the, the sequences with the car that look filmed. Yeah. And you've got the sequence with the punch-up that looks naff. And it's not like the same cameraman has taken both shots. It just seems shoehorned in and designed for impact to sort of tie in with the soundtrack. I think oh, if well. they'd kept the places around the world and mm -hmm. between each one of those, perhaps a piece of artwork, that would have been enough. It needed that car, I suppose, and I suppose Jensen were happy with it. It's just a bit of a mix and match and one that's not particularly done very well, sadly. We haven't mentioned Manor in Shop and Upstairs Apartment. The shop was a standing set, but the apartment was only a standing set for a while and then it sort of disappeared and you didn't get any more. But what I quite liked about the apartment was that it showed that early use of video recording equipment. 
he had a video entry recording thing in his his front door but he also had video recording in his shop so when crimes were committed it's usually replayed back that is david marlowe getting bashed over the head by someone not only did he get bashed over the head in the film and it got replayed for you just in case you didn't get the fact that he was being bashed over the head. I, mean, I quite liked that and i thought the apartment was a little bit split level as well so quite nicely done the, the gadget sort of thing gets dropped though doesn't it again yeah. um, mm. because if you think that the gadgets in that pilot episode work on two levels he's got gadgets in his apartment and templeton green gives him gadgets if you remember mm. in that pilot episode for him yeah. to use danger man stuff they were danger man props we don't get that again do we certainly not the templeton green giving him mm. things to help on the assignment i'm not suggesting mm. that's a bad thing because perhaps it does make it too danger man ish or too bond-esque i suggest that this is a flaw in the baron's character because he doesn't invest well in his shop because he's got that wonderful video recording system but you've got i think it's diplomatic immunity you've got supposedly a faberge item or whatever it was and the cabinets inside the shop are so easily breakable into. I, I would have put some money pr protecting the goods, not just having the system for looking after the event. One of the things I really do like about this show is how many interesting backstories we get to the pieces of art. I really mm -hmm. like that. I think that gives a lot of the stories an extra layer or mm -hmm. who they belong to or... Obviously, in an episode like Samurai West, which was the first one, I think, filmed, actually, the backstory, in many ways, adds layers to the whole story, if that makes sense. It's a fundamental point, isn't it? Because the whole thing rests on the sword and the honour of the family in possessing the sword. And honour is the theme that runs throughout the episode. But some of the props they did produce, I mean, not all of them are wonderful, but some of the props they did produce for the antique pieces aren't too bad. They did take a little bit of time with things like the sword and the Sistine manuscript in a long, long day. Some of them are terrible. We know the medallions from Farewell to Yesterday just look like shortbread biscuits. Yeah. But for the most part, they did him proud. Well, that yeah. Samurai sword looks fabulous. Also, the Corelli yep. sword in Countdown looks impressive. Mm. One thing I was going to say is they don't particularly handle the antiques as if they're very valuable. <laughs> lots of them, <laughs> lots of the times they're just saying, yeah, I've got this thing here. <laughs> you know, no, no gloves or anything. Yeah, I mean, th th this, this sort of moves on to a different point. The central figure of the Baron as the antique dealer. There are more than a handful of episodes where the connection to his role, to his life, his work, is so tenuous. You just get the briefest catalyst for what then becomes a sort of normal spy story or what have you. I mean, we talked about scripts there about Terry Nation being lazy. I mean, and, the, and this is the show that's got the very famous incident where basically there's a saint story called Leader and Nation rewrote the whole episode as a barren story called Portrait of Louisa. Now, I would argue, actually, and it's quite controversial, that I think Portrait of Louisa is better than Leader. I think when he's had a chance to see Leader and then reflect on it, I think it's superior in the fact that portrait of Louisa is based in England as opposed to the Bahamas. I liked the fact that the blackmailer, again spoiler alert, is the sister and that's not yeah. revealed until four minutes from the end of the episode. I mean yeah you can kind of guess it 
and Nation was really criticised for doing this, but it's his own work, so it's not like he's plagiarising anyone else. And I think, you know, lots of people go and rewrite stuff. You know, is a, is a novel ever finished, as a sort of saying, isn't there? But it got unlucky because they were re-shown on the same night, weren't they? Sort of yeah. like one almost after the other. I'm sure there wouldn't have been nearly so much of a fuss otherwise. But I mean, I, I think it works well. And actually, it's one of those episodes where we do get a feeling of swinging London. Yeah. You've got this sort of voodoo club. And um, from what I remember, when she's wandering around the sort of voodoo club, we see things through sort of her eyes and everyone's sort of staring at her. And yeah. that Terence Alexander character is great with his sort of comment about what he's sort of running the shop for. I provide drink, music and dark corners. It's that thing you've just mentioned when she comes in and does the first look around the club, that's a beautiful bit of handheld camera work. That is really cinematic. And I love the decor in the club, the masks and mm. whatever, and how they use them to intimidate. But thematically, when you come to the end of that story and you think about it, that is very, very dark because, like you say, in the, in the final four minutes, you realise that the blackmailer is the sister. But once the episode stops, stop and think how evil that girl was because she's ratcheting up the tension at the start. She's yeah. really sort of putting Luisa on edge. There's stress, there's, there's arguments. She's really sort of turning the screw. So she's, she may look nice, but she's a particularly nasty villain in my book. And actually, there are other characters in there who are quite unpleasant. I mean, you, Brian Wilde's character mm. is sort of this giggling assassin, isn't he? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's, he's um, great. It's a nice bit of sleaze, that character for Jazz, because we know that Jazz likes his sleaze. I do, yeah. I think he's great in it as a photographer who's like leading a double life as the assassin, you know, and I love the fact that he keeps calling everyone friend. That's actually a beautifully directed episode. I mean, I noted yeah. when I watched it, there are lots of lovely little continuity bits. I mean, we get to see Peter Langley's handkerchief and suddenly that makes way in a completely different scene for the inspector who's sneezing. And I think we get Brian yeah. Wilde giggling, suddenly becomes the inspector coughing and things. And uh, I do love the way that that, that episode was directed, including the, the bits in the voodoo club. And the inspector is used as a sort of comic foil to the darkness oh. of the episode. That's what I like about it. Like you say, he's constantly got this cold and is like you know, <laughs> sneezing and sort of not doing a very good job. He's, he's very teal-like, isn't he, that copper? He's, he's, a, he's a bit on the sort of Claude, Claude Eustace scale. But the, the most frightening element of the uh, whole episode is when they almost write off both bar one and the P1800. Near miss. I don't blame Terry Nation at all. It's Monty Berman who takes the blame for that. Mm, because if you put these two under huge pressure to get the best part of 30 episodes done, and Terry Nation is presumably script editing the other ones as well, there will be corners cut. Make 26. Don't put the guys under pressure. But like I say, I actually think if you watch them back to back like I did... Portrait of Louisa is actually better because he's had a chance to see what leaders like and think, right, I could improve this story by doing X, Y, Z. And he does. I think it's a cracking episode, actually. I think this is an example of the Baron, it, to me, is at its best when there are darker dramatic elements but they're also sort of quirky fun ones in there mm. as well and mm. when it combines the two, I think we get a really interesting series. This is where I started to notice cheapness because there's that big double door set that's the main room at Luisa's place. And then you start to notice it recurring and recurring. And I think they run to, through basically the entire series. The Boyfriend's Cottage, that's not a bad little set. 
but mm. the emphasis is on little. One thing I notice about the Baron as a whole is scale. Apart from maybe that huge standing set with the sweeping staircase, which appears time and time again, I don't get that great sense of scale like I did with the Saints. You have got that enormous marble-floored temple room in the high terrace. That is a huge set. Now, I, I don't know whether that was a set that had been used on another show before, because it, it seems very ornate and large for two tiny scenes, really. But it also seems very empty. The sets do seem very, very tight. The sets aren't populated with lots of extras and uncredited actors like they are in The Saint. For example, The ah. Saint plays with fire. When you look at that jury set, that's a huge, huge set. There's an entrance to it and there's people in there. I'll challenge you on that because that's the, the counterpoint I've noticed. The internal sets may not be populated, but that blessed backlot, there are so many people walking <laughs> around those street corners. Yes. You know, you, you, you would think it was the end of Oxford Street or something. I suspect he was trying to disguise the cheapness of the thing by just putting visual distractions, having so many pedestrians and passers-by. In a sense, haven't you got to do one or the other? You've either got to build lovely sets and accept you're going to be location light, mm -hmm. or perhaps skip a bit on the sets and do an awful lot of location work. I mean, Gideon's Way is not a show which has got lots of fabulous sets. I wouldn't say Man in a Suitcase is a series that's full of fabulous sets, but it's so location heavy, particularly in the London ones, mm -hmm. that you don't mind. And yes. I think you can't cut both corners. There are some, as Jazz has sort of implied earlier, there are some lovely moments of location. One of the best for me is the lime quarry in The Persuaders. Mm. That really gives it a chance to stretch. It's a godsend to the cameraman because he's got those lovely high angles when they're doing the observation work. That's a brilliant piece of location stuff. We can't do a podcast on the Baron without talking about the very famous ITC White Jag that was filmed for this series. And the Get White Jaguar going off the cliff. Yeah, now there you go, you see. That appeared in so many ITC shows after this, but it was filmed mm, for the Baron. This. Is it true? And the story I have read is that it was so expensive to make that, they felt that they had to reuse it and reuse it to the point where if any character in an ITC show gets into a white Jaguar, you know that they're <laughs> about to die. Well, and this yeah. is the thing that we mentioned about Monty, about him he going on holiday and filming bits for his show. Monty was the sort of person that if he filmed something and thought, I can reuse it again, or had a story built on a set and like, that's a good set we'll reuse that again he was mm. always about recycling and reusing the same old not, not same old that sounds a bit harsh but he filmed that for the baron so it all his shows afterwards right i can use that we'll, re yeah. we'll write that into an episode i mean this is a big bugbear of mine the quality of some of the stock footage and the age of the stock footage that mm. they bought for this i mean the man outside you get the opening footage establishing shots of Scotland and you've got cars there from the sort of like 1940s or 1950s with the split screen rear windows and I'm thinking this is supposed to look contemporary. <laughs> Long, Long Day it is one of a number of episodes that I feel has a real Western feel to it, like the Wild West. The music has a definite Wild West feel to it. Mm -hmm. And of course, not only is, is Steve Forrest's character meant to be a sort of Texan rancher, 
but his background is mostly in Western TV series, isn't it? And I wondered, do you think they were being a little bit playful there and almost playing on his Wild West roots? I was going to say the thing that I found really like a TV Western about that is the Irish drunk in the cell. The mm-hmm. man in the cell, that is such such a lift from a Western TV show, isn't it? Yeah, it stinks of high noon. It's a, it's a lovely story. It's one of the ones I'd put up in, in the top half dozen. But, well, even that but, red horse, red rider, it's a little bit Wild West. It's almost as if they've gone into a sort of frontier territory, isn't it? Well, and, especially and, driving across the desert at night and all that, you know, yeah. sort of fleeing the... And that jungle episode, when he goes into that outback bar, again, it's almost frontier country, isn't it? But Long Long Day, going back to that, I think that's got one of the best and probably the most disturbing teaser of the whole lot. That whole thing about the young girl being introduced at the party and basically he's going to take her in the bedroom and he's going to rape her. And in the end, Mm. she doesn't agree to it and they kill her. It's brilliant. Uh, That teaser, I mean, that's Roy Ward Baker. That teaser is brilliantly done because he drops us in on the party and he circulates us around the party with the camera. We've got no clue what's going on, but it's Mm. very cinematic. You can see all the different types of characters as the camera moves around. And then, as you say, suddenly we're into this really, really dark theme of the betrayal of innocence. It's a very strong opener. Does the rest of the episode quite fit in with it? The teaser is so dark that I'm never convinced that what happens in the main body of the story sort of fits that darkness. I think it becomes quite a light episode later on. I mean, the Irishman in jail, Murphy, mm. is almost a sort of semi-comic character, isn't he? Oh, very much so, yeah. I think it yeah. comes a little bit predictable. It's the sort of standard mafia story, isn't it? Sort of isolate the witness, kill the witness. But I I still think it's well done. And I do actually quite like Murphy because he redeems himself, doesn't he, at the end of the episode, as we know. If we're talking about great episodes, which episodes are you putting in that great episode category then? I'm throwing Samurai West straight in there. And it's bizarre because it is the first one filmed. And of course, it is an episode that doesn't have Cordelia in it at all. But I think it's sublime. I cannot think of a better ITC script. I really can't. Which begs the question, why on earth, Brian Degas, was he not asked back? I mean, you've got everything here. It's philosophical. It -hmm. talks about cultural heritage, identity, war crimes. I know that the PC brigade will come out and say, you shouldn't have Lee Montague playing a Japanese guy. But actually, I think he plays the part very well. And when anyone does bring that PC card out, I always say no one complains about Jean Rowland playing a Japanese character. She's no more Japanese than I am. She was half Burmese, half English. She's good. She's brilliant. Well, I mean, the Colonel Sterling, who's the actor who plays... Raymond Huntley. Yeah. I mean, he's superb in it. Completely cast against type. Yeah, very good. You can't watch that episode without being mortified when he starts shouting at that drinks party, can you? You know, <laughs> filthy little Japs he starts yep. shouting. Yeah. He'd be embarrassed, And yet you? then, w- when the Baron talks to him later, you know, the war's been over for 20 years, well, not for me, etc. You start to realise that all of these characters are three-dimensional. I mean, Asano tries to argue, I was a soldier, I took orders. The Baron says being a soldier doesn't absolve you from being a man. This is pretty deep. 
It's the deepest script of them all. I mean, it is literally looking at who pays the price in that sort of wartime context. Yes, Asano only taking orders or whatever, but ultimately he pays, he loses his wife. He effectively loses his contact with his own culture, which is what Yusugi is so strong on. And to an extent, he loses the contact with his daughter. The Jean Rowling character, who doesn't belong anywhere, she says, if I went to Japan, I don't speak a word of Japanese. And over here, you all look at me and think I look strange. Yeah, the problem of cultural identity for Samantha in that one. I can identify with that quite readily because I'm sort of here and I've got half my roots in Fiji, but I think I'd be quite a bit lost if I went out there. The whole episode really is quite a tragedy. So we've got that one as one of our top episodes. Let's, let's have another one then. Go on. Come on, Rodney. You've, you've got to bring yeah. Sam in. Yes. Sam Wanamaker. You can't win them all. Mm. Great episode. Brilliant it, episode. It, it is superb. And I mean, that has to be one of my favourite teasers from any show. You know, when you've got the sort of petty thief who's brought in into the club in this rug, which is then rolled out the silent girlfriend who doesn't say a single word in the whole episode, even though she appears in a huge number of scenes. Mm-hmm. And she has her sort of a sun tanning lamp stolen and it becomes an interrogation lamp. It's a wonderfully classy teaser, isn't it? It's a brilliant teaser. I mean, it, it's Don Chaffee on four on, on the sort of form you ex- expect from him. Like you say, the, delivering him in the rolled up carpet, the sweep across her body as we come in and you wonder what you're in for here the hands cutting the cards there's a lot of show not tell and when we get the inquisition the inquisition is quietly brutal you can see that this is a guy not to be messed with the episode delivers on the teaser i mean there's a lot of good openers in this but as we've said as you thought with long long day the te- sometimes the teaser doesn't stand up to the episode sunday I mean, morning that, sunday morning to see some filming you know yes. i mean waterloo station i love that i was mm. going to say that in the teaser sunday morning location shoot as well with the guy yes. running around the quiet streets of early morning london i loved it you know you described it as a humbug didn't you her plastic mm-hmm. zebra coat mm-hmm. and cap i love the fact that you know it is used as a sort of chekhov's gun thing and that you think well i hope that's going to get used in the plot and of course mm-hmm. then the, the silent baddie girl is wearing it isn't she to yes. lure him in again that sequence comes down to what i've been saying about the nuggets of inventiveness in most of these episodes i think the bump and injection thing at the station for Cordelia, that's that's quite inventive. And the spray drug, of course, when the Baron gets done, is quite topical still in this modern age. And the policeman, who's a bit different, because this policeman, he says, look, I know you've got contacts high up with my bosses, but mm-hmm. that doesn't wash with me. I don't like amateurs mixing in with my work. He threatens to be almost a bit of an adversary and for there to be a bit of conflict. And I mm-hmm. think that works well. We don't always want the Baron on friendly terms, I don't think, with officialdom. You've got some great Waterloo station footage, location footage. BR must have been very friendly to producers in those years. We get backstory, don't we? We find out that Baron's a demon poker player because he he spent three years in the army and, you know, picked it up off these other guys who played a lot of the time. And I do like the sort of little backstory elements that we get. And it's a nice little comic touch when he's there demonstrating his ace dealing to Cordelia. (laughs) Why on earth are you earning your living this way? You could be out in Las Vegas. But we also get some nice location stuff with the prison and quite grisly death in the coal pile. It's hinted at, going to threaten him to do it. And later on, it's done. It's a very effective threat when you first see it, that uh, coal hopper thing. Well, Uh, I think Sefton Focard, a.k.a. Sam Wanamaker, gets my vote as the best baddie by some way in the series. 
He's so understated with it, that's why. Mr Wooden, as the critics would have, if you think, Steve Forrest stands up to Sam Wanamaker in the acting stakes. And Mannering cheats, which I like, because mm, if, yeah. if I was going to have a criticism of Mannering, it might be that he is a goody-goody. He can get tough, but he does play by the rules normally, doesn't he, if he can. And I like the fact that he sort of cheats in return, which Basically. after all was going to be the only way of winning the poker game. That's a really good episode. I definitely recommend people to watch that one. I'm going to chuck in Seven Eyes of Night because of Jeremy Brett and Hilary Tyndall. And in particular, mm. the scene where Jeremy Brett explains everything to her, that she's just a little sort of pussycat and he's going to kill her and he's injected her and he's got her in the car and he's telling her the whole story and the car's running with the exhaust fumes. <laughs> Very great villain. He's Ill- a real evil. psycho. Yeah. He's, a, he's a psycho and he's a, he's a narcissist because he, he wants somebody to know what he's doing. Not only yeah. am I going to kill you, I'm going to tell you about how I'm going to kill you. I'm going to make yeah. you really sort of squirm on that hook. And he um, tells her that he, he never liked her anyway, doesn't he? He yes. says, you know, there, there's nothing special about you. I think he says, I'm just going to tidy up. Yeah, he does. Yeah. It's a wonderful theme of betrayal in that one overall. I mean, it runs through to the, even to the ending. There's a, it's a lovely ending. It's constant double crossing, isn't it? Directing-wise was that. Bob Asher did a good job. Jeremy Brett's performance is very similar to when he did a film in 63, The Very Edge, and he, he was the rapist, basically. To me, it came across as very much of that, very, very cold. And again, talking of The Baron, I think of The Baron as a fairly sort of light-hearted ITC adventure, but you look at this and you've got Walker, the Jeremy Brett character, coldly killing Varel, the other guy who he's working with. I like the way... Asher brings out plays on the neurosis when you've got that crossover, you've got the criminal as the victim. A little bit of inventiveness in this episode mm. for me. And the way they build on her neurosis and isolation and John and Cordelia doing a very, very sort of blatant stakeout. We're here, we're watching it, and they just play on it. It's a war of nerves, really nicely done. And, there's a, and it's counterpointed with that lovely piece of humour where Cordelia is tempted to eat, his, eat the second sandwich. <laughs> There's a little bit of location work at the start, which I like, in the mm-hmm. teaser. And there's a lovely little bit of lighting on Jeremy Brett's face where he's at the blinds that mm-hmm. is really well done. I like the fact there's a, like a fake bottom and another fake layer to the case. And the Hilary Tyndall character notices that. So, And I think that she was really good in this. I mean, she went on to be a, a, a wonderful actress in, mm-hmm. in years, sadly taken from us far too early. But um, I thought she was really good in this. Well, I mean, Madame Devereux, basically, we were talking about Jeremy Brett's character being cold-blooded, but she wears the trousers in in their relationship, doesn't she? Which which makes for that wonderful point of utter disbelief on his face when he's gunned down at the end Mm. of the episode. We're going to have to talk about the maze. The maze does work really, really well. I do think it is the Baron disappearing slightly into Avengers territory. I mean, obviously, this is Brian Clemens writing under another name because he wasn't contractually, he wasn't able to write under his own name. You can see it's a Clemens episode, which actually, in a weird way, is a relief here because it offers us something a little bit different from Nation Stroke Spooner. I mean, I loved the little filling station he stops at early on. And of course, we already know what the gunshots are from, but he doesn't. And the garage station guy says to him, oh, it's shooting season. 
mm. which is straight out of Clemens doing sort of Town and No Return, where it's sort of badger hunting at night, which is equally ridiculous. Mm. Mm. But, um, you know, I love the actual maze itself. And the whole story really is about a metaphorical maze, isn't it? Because he's lost mm. a day and he's got to put all these little parts of the day together, yes. work out where all these props fit in. You know, you've got an undercover policeman, got a gun in his golf bag. You know, there are lots of lovely little touches. And I do like that very trippy sort of dream sequence. It revolves around that. You've got the beautiful executed disorientation sequence with all the Avengers star things, the big finger, the cats. But then, like as you've said, you come back into the real world now and he's got to rebuild that bit by bit. And that's how I think that episode succeeds. I could have done without the corny bit at the end, not a bad day's work, and Cordelia corrects him, two days' work. Oh, the the end was so sort of Avengers tag sequence, wasn't it? With the hitchhiker and what have you. Like you said about the petrol station, and I love the bit where he goes back and uh, they're pulling up the chains of the thing and then they see the lamps on the thing in the garage and all that. The actual use of the garage as a a location is is really well done. It's not just filling up with petrol. It's then explored as well. Mm. You know, all the We don't see Elstree at all, do we, outside? We don't see that back lot once. No, it's a... It's a battle zone, thank God. Yeah. And that's and that's again, that's why I said it works so well when they do go on location because it it, it kind of frees the show. It liberates mm. it from that constraint of the same old corners and the same old people walking around, like you say. It actually gives it a chance to breathe and develop. And yeah. I think actually Cordelia is freed here because rather than just being tied up or shoved in a cupboard or something. She's sort of almost his rational self. She's yes. questioning him the whole time. Mm. You know, there wasn't a girl. You know, you've lost a day. You know, are you sure about this? And mm. so she's almost as a cynical, rational self for him, which I think gives her a bit more meat. Well, I mean, we said before, haven't we, with Clemens, when we talked about previous shows, that when he gets his balance right, when he doesn't go over the top, he provides you with a script which has got darkness but it's got quirkiness in there as well. And I think he certainly delivers with that script. It's a popular one with fans and you can see why. I'd like to throw in Roundabout. I think that's Mm. a good episode. Edwin Richfield returning. He was in an earlier one with Annette Andre. I like the fact that we get a hint of the other shops because they say the Baron has shops in London, Paris and Washington. Well, we'd never get ever going to go to Washington. This is about as close as we get to the Baron going to Paris to find out what's going on in and around his shop. It's a wonderful role for Annette Andre. It yeah. really shows what she could do if she was given the material. Would it have been not a possibility for her to be the sort of character who appeared in three or four? She's basically a sort of drugs officer, isn't she? Working for mm-hmm. illicit drugs, mm-hmm. traffic control. She replaces Sue Lloyd in the episode, in effect, doesn't she, mm-hmm. as well? I think it adds a real variety. She brings quite a bit of fun. I mean, there's that wonderful set with the creepy mannequins. I always love mannequins. <laughs> and there's her hands, bodies, torsos, and she starts stroking the Baron with a fake hand quite playfully. Um, yeah. I, I thought that was all really good fun. Yeah, yeah, and he's it, very, very flirty with her, isn't he? That, I mean, if Alwyn... Do you blame him? Well, no, of course not. But, I mean, if Alwyn Turner had seen that episode, he would definitely have said, oh, maybe, actually, the Baron can, can flirt with girls. And then on the other, the other side of the lady equation, you've got June Ritchie, who I, I think is absolutely wonderful in the opener yeah. because it, it's all about what she doesn't say. 
she does have lines and she does come back to Delaire and the wife, but you can see that this is just essentially a money grubber, a man eater. You can see the character without her even actually saying a word. It's really well done. I would have liked to have seen the Baron visiting his shop. Yeah, I, I mean, it strikes me he's gone all the way to Paris. I would have thought he'd visit the shop, which, mm-hmm. before I forget, does bring me on to one bugbear I have about the overseas episodes. Oh. And that is, he's always got his car. Now, you know, man in a suitcase, if McGill is abroad, he hasn't got his Hillman imp. I don't know how the Baron gets his car to, I mean, OK, Paris, it's maybe just about acceptable. Coming back to Roundabout, roundabout um, yeah. I like the sleeper of the subplot of the betrayed wife. She disappears into London. We've got another sort of station locker key and another station. It's Gardunor this time for the Baron. She turns up completely unexpectedly, virtually towards the end of the episode, and she tries to shoot him. As the episode progresses and finalises, she has a breakdown and then she's back. And she's quite forgiving. I think that's a wonderful little subplot Mm. stroke sleeper. It gives it a bit more depth. Countdown, I think, is a fantastic episode. I love Philip Locke in it. He's great as a sort of sidekick to a villain. Edward Woodward is great in it as Arkin Morley. Crooked antique stealer, the opposite side of the trade for Mannering to spar against. And like you say, lots of good location stuff. I mean, the teaser of car hijack in the tunnel is great. All the stuff around Elstree itself, where they're filming a film and they go on the set and the fight in the gantry is brilliant. I think it's a really great episode. You've got some really bizarre deaths in it. Mm. I mean, there's the chocolate gobbling henchman who's then run over by the train. And the other one dies in the mechanical digger thing, doesn't he, as well? It does annoy me that all the ITC heroes faithfully accept road-closed diversion signs. Mm. I want one of them, you know, to, to raise their eyebrow and think, really? I think this is the best of Robert Asher's contributions to the series as a director. It's really sort of dynamic. And I would have thought, going back into their shoes, this would have been a lovely way to end production because this was the final one shot. It really moves well. It's got some nice little gimmicks. I love the use of the crossword puzzle. And Harold Lang steals his scenes. As we're starring The Saint, we do get that extra layer from it being a film studio, don't we? Yes. Mm. I think the line that's fed is, I think Edward Woodward says to the Baron, I don't suppose you get much chance to see this end of the business. The Roman gladiators are smoking between scenes. Yeah. Um, There are some wonderful quirky little bits. I love it, the way that it's such a thumping, non-sequitur cut. Suddenly you cut to the absolutely stunning Valerie Leon in the red leotard. And you're looking and you think, has the television detuned? Has somebody put the wrong reel on the DVD? It's it's such a complete bang, non-sequitur cut. But then obviously you realise as you go forward, the way he gave that impact was brilliant. Arkin is a wonderful snob, isn't he? Because he shows off about his, his fluent Latin. Yes. And he says what he describes as his very superior English education. From the moment they meet up, I love that sort of snip snapping at each other with the when did we last meet? Was it when I obeyed on you on this? No, it was when I obeyed you on, on this. That. And, and you can just feel the antagonism. Yeah. I mean, actually, you're talking of bloodthirsty, even the client comes to his death by a colossal boulder sort of landing on him, doesn't he? Um, it's yes. got quite a high death count this one that's a nice sequence with the um, the bulldozer and whatever the crane mm. yeah that's a sort uh, of little siege isn't it it's really well yeah. done that 
as the series goes on, generally, it gets better and better in terms of episodes. And Steve Forrest is relaxed into the roles. Sue kind of knows what she's doing. Okay, her part isn't brilliant, but she does well. And like towards the end, you get this run of episodes that are actually quite good. I just think that it's a shame that it took eight episodes for them to realise we need to reformat this. So when I was trying to sort of keep an anorak tally of the episodes that I considered to be good ones, I put down that I think 15 of the 30 are good. I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. I didn't include the roundabout. You're making me feel guilty. (laughs) uh, of, of, Of those 15... 12 of them come in the second half in terms of production order. That's my subjective opinion, but it does sort of hint that they really were getting better, weren't they? I was watching the other night, The Man Outside, and I was thinking, where is this going? Because, Jazz, you were saying you like the slow burn element of this. And I was sitting yeah. there thinking, where is this going? And then in the last literally eight, eight or nine minutes, it just takes off and, go, and goes through the stratosphere in terms of product, basically, quality and whatever. I suppose you've got to come back to, if you're talking about top episodes, the other double part of the good one. Well, masquerade. Masquerade. Superb. Yeah, masquerade masquerade and the killing and it gives Steve Forrest a chance to sing mm-hmm. I didn't realise until I looked him up on Wikipedia that he actually started out as a songster I like the end sequence when they're in the vault this sort of touch makes me wonder where the Baron sits in the ITC hierarchy because you've got bits like policemen recognising him and, and his reputation is such that he can get a complete stranger into the most secure vault in the country with him <laughs> yeah I laughed at that <laughs> It's also such that they don't think twice about leaving the gates open when they think he's going to peg out on them to let the ambulance men in. He's got quite a sort of known reputation, and I wonder if it puts him sort of on a par with the saint in the NITC land. Well, he's more respectable. He's respected, isn't he, as an art dealer? He does sort of hint that quite often he's only in this for the money. He's not really the the gentleman adventurer, is he? Yeah, in some for a rainy day, he's only interested in the insurance recovery Mm. money. And there is a lot of time where he talks about the value of the antiques. You know, he said, it'll cost you $10,000. And the money thing is the side of the antiques that he seems to be interested in. Well, he does give us the backstories, though, doesn't he? And I mean, he does actually sound as if they sort of add an extra layer in terms of the monetary thing. I mean, the character, again, is a bit uneven there because uh, Louisa, his old flame, he deliberately overpays her for an antique. And in um, The Long, Long Day, when he's offered the Sistine manuscript for nothing, he refuses it. Some of the killings in the Baron, I was going yeah. to say, they're quite when, bloody. When Bernard Lee kills the two guards in cold blood as he's yeah. trying to escape from the vault. That's opened my eyes a bit. Like I said earlier, I always thought of it as slightly lighter ITC, but it's got, it's got some edges in there. There's a lot of blood in the, the killings in the Baron, which I think most people would have overlooked. Actually, when people are shot, there is blood. And it's not mm. like in the Avengers where someone's shot and they fall down dramatically and there's no blood. You know, if someone's been stabbed, there is a knife wound or there's blood. And, and I think those little details do get overlooked. Even that filling station guy I was on about earlier in the maze, I mean, he ends up being stabbed to death. I think for me, the most shocking thing is the readiness to kill women. 
obviously, because it's what the series thrives on. You've got a lot of threat, but then you've got the actuality of like the death of Eva in Diplomatic Immunity and the really, really powerful death scene of Sylvia Sims at the end of Farewell to Yesterday. In a way, I think that's what marks that episode out as being far better than many of them, is that her character, one has empathised with and got to know. Mm-hmm. And so actually when she does die, I think it has a greater impact. Yeah, it hits you right between the eyes. It's re- I yeah. mean, you can see it on screen with the Baron character. But yes, as, as a viewer, you've heard this tale of hope and dashed hope. And you know that this is a lost soul. And by the time you come to the end of the episode, mm-hmm. you're sort of expecting it, but you don't want it, not by a long chalk. But it's sort of fated, isn't it? But, I mean, that is a, a seriously three-dimensional character. She says, I'm a liar, a lush, a tramp. Let me go to hell my own way. She kind of moves you. I felt yes. really sorry for her. Thinking, like, she just needs to find the right guy to look after her. And One thing that I always try and write down any little bits of witty dialogue that the Baron has. And it strikes me that actually Steve Forrest is very good at delivering the witty lines. He just doesn't get enough of them. One of the ship episodes, Night of the Hunter. Is Night of the Hunter, which I think is a poor episode, to be honest. Clunk but I mean, up. on that one, I think the ship's captain is asking for more and more money. They all seem to in ITC land. Yeah. And, you know, the Baron says, I want to ride the ship, not buy it. And when he gets little lines like that to deliver... Actually, Forrest is very good at delivering them. I think there's a henchman in a hotel room in an episode who's, and he says, well, who the hell are you? And Forrest says, I'm the guy standing between you and the door. I do think if they'd given him more of those, you know, what smudge called nuggets, he can deliver. He can what? flirt and he can deliver a witty line. One of my sort of favourites, and it is a nugget, and it sums up the series in a a nutshell for me. It's in Roundabout, where he's going to masquerade as being part of the gang. He he says to Annette Andre, just give me the plot and I'll add lib. I mean, the series was popular. I mean, it was sold for networking to ABC in America. And uh, it was sold throughout the world, you know, Mexico, Australia, France, Spain, usual ITC sales. We need to remember that, okay, a lot of people sort of, have not necessarily written it off, but I think mm-hmm. it's a bit forgotten in sort of ITC land. Yeah, it was a series that was made for the American market because the Americans bought the format. So, mm-hmm. you know, and there's a success. You know, okay, they didn't show all thirty episodes, but it was still an an ITC show that was on prime time on ABC in America. As I said at the start of this, coming back to this, not being a show I regularly rewatch, there's been far more to it than I, I remembered. I think as well, Steve Forrest comes across as a really nice guy. We've got some interview footage that we'll play. I think he enjoyed making the show and I think he enjoyed working with the cast and crew and it was different. When you hear on the DVD commentaries or what have you, when you hear his contemporaries talking about him, it seems like he was a slightly shy, reserved man. I get the impression he enjoyed his time here. Thanks to Kaleidoscope, the organisation who run Missing Believed Wiped, we're able to play an archive interview clip with Steve Forrest. The Baron is a man with, uh, first of all, with antique shops in Paris, London and Washington. 
He's a character who's involved in a great deal of adventure and intrigue, always springing out of the sale of antiques, the theft of antiques, the misuse of antiques for one reason or another. He's a character with some heart, I would say. He likes people, and sometimes he's a little bit of a knight on a white charger, I would say. But he's in the business for profit, and he makes a profit. One episode involves um, a theft by an international ring of thieves who are taking art objects from England and taking them out of the country uh, via the diplomatic pouch. This takes us to, I think, Hungary. There's one story behind the Iron Curtain. One takes us to Rome. As an American, the Baron is an American in this series. He's a man who got involved with antiques via his work during the war with the Arts Reclamation Commission. That is, retrieving stolen works of art, works stolen by the Nazis. It was cached in various places all over Europe. And during this um, period of time, he made certain contacts with um, an Englishman who turns out to be later with the diplomatic intelligence, as we call it. This character is called Templeton Green in the series. I'm also sent on missions by Templeton Green, and occasionally Templeton Green does favors for me as the Baron. In other words, the Baron has contacts in many places, in a higher strata of society and also in the underworld. I would also say in terms of Steve Forrest, the things that don't work about the Baron, hardly any of them are anything to do with him at all. Now, I mean, we've talked about backlot dependency. We've talked about poor color. We've talked about not enough variety in terms of script writers. None of those are anything to do with Steve Forrest. But he really does sound like a lovely guy. Maybe he's an easy target. Everyone who speaks about Steve Forrest who worked on it said he was a nice guy. The interview we've got, we've played some clips from, you can hear he's a nice guy. In a DVD commentary I recorded in 2004 with the director, Roy Ward Baker, he gave me his thoughts on Steve Forrest as an actor. Well, he was a presence, which was valuable. That was important because he was a central figure. So he had to be it. And he was, that was good. He was very tall and handsome and all that. It's a good actor. And yes, not much to say. It was just good. I think he quitted himself well for the role that he was given. Like you say, the faults with the series are not down to him. They're down to the overuse of the backlot, very little location, not enough script writers, the poor colour palette, some of the, the lighting, well, a lot of the lighting, the fact they didn't get in someone to help them with that. As well, Monty Berman as producer, scrimping on budget so he could get the maximum number of episodes. Whereas, like I've said to you guys in this leading up to it, if he'd have just cut that back to 26 and spent a little bit more money. This is really a niggle for me. You know this is going to be a flagship programme. This is possibly a failing of Lou Gray's judgment here. Why allocate the project to somebody who you know is going to skimp? Uh, but I think when it was, like I say, right at the start, when it was Bob Baker and Monty Berman, I think if Bob had still been in control, partly in control of it, it would have been a very different series if the Saint hadn't gone, got that colour order. I think that what would have happened was that it would have been a different show in the way that Bob liked quality. 
I think they would have made 26 if Bob Baker and Monty Berman had made this a bit like Gideon's Way. And I think that there would have been a lot of different things happening. It is a shame and it, and it is a sort of um, disrespect to Steve Forrest. He did reasonably well and he, and he was hampered. It's just such a pity that he was tight-fisted. I would love to see someone produce a Blu-ray version. There are episodes that are great and we've been, I hope, fair in our analysis and chatting about this, but it would look glorious, I think, in Blu-ray. It would be nice to see a restoration. We had another great episode. Thanks for listening. Um, And we'll be back with another episode of ITC Entertain the World in the very near future. Thanks again to my usual co-hosts of Rodney Marshall and Al Smudge. Couldn't do this without you. Thanks, you guys. So it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Sorry. And (laughs) goodbye from me too. Thanks, guys. You have been listening to episode seven of the ITC Entertain the World podcast with Jazz Wiseman, Rodney Marshall and Al Samudge. With thanks to Kaleidoscope for the clip of Steve Forrest. It was a bitter and twisted production for the morning after.